All right, here we go. Glad y'all are here today. Um, this is part 11 in the final part of 2 Timothy. Wrapping it up today, okay? So it's four-chapter book. No telling what we'd do if we got into a longer one. So we'll see. We got a new series we're starting next week. We'll show you what that is later. But uh, I want to show you this. It is uh, March Madness time. It's Final Four time. My pick, the Duke Blue Devils are still alive, so that's good. Uh, we'll see what happens, but in, it reminds me of this story. That is not the best picture I chose. That's okay. This was the 2014 to 2015 Kentucky Wildcats. I don't know if you know much about them. I don't know if you remember what happened, but I want to walk you through this a little bit. Uh, this really got everybody going, which is interesting, but they made the final four this year in 2015. Okay, so I guess seven years ago, they made the final four. They entered the final four game that they played. It was against Wisconsin. They entered with a 38-0 record. So they were undefeated. They had won 38 straight games. And going into that season, there were people that were like, man, this could be the best college basketball team of all time. And throughout the season, I looked it up earlier. There were actually conversations people were having of could they beat an NBA team? Like this year, could this team beat an NBA team? And I'll walk you through a little bit of their roster, even if these names don't mean anything to you. Okay, one of their freshmen, his name was Carl Anthony Towns. He's in the picture. He became the number one overall NBA pick. Trey Lyles, I think he's in this picture. He became the 12th overall NBA pick that season. Devin Booker, if you've probably heard of his name, he became the 13th pick overall. He's in that picture. And he is now an NBA all-star, and he came off the bench, okay? He did not even start for Kentucky a lot that year. He literally came off the bench, all right? Devin Booker coming off your bench. There was a fourth guy that was their fourth five-star recruit just in that freshman class. And that's just the newcomers. That was not the people that were returning. Okay, they returned Willie Cauley-Stein, who you may know his name because he was a Maverick. Um, he became an All-American that season. There were two brothers, Andrew and Aaron Harrison. They returned that season. So everybody was like, man, this right here could be the best college basketball team of all time. 38-0 record. They get to the Final Four. They play Wisconsin and they lose in the final four, 71 to 64. So they completely lose. So what's their final record? 38 and one. Okay, if they would have gone 40 and 0, they're undefeated, 40 and 0, national champions. You probably talk about them forever, okay? But to this day, they rarely even get talked about anymore because they had that one loss, right? 38 and one. They had the chance to be the historic team, best team ever, but all they did is they, they lost in the final four, okay? And it's so disappointing because when this happens, I root for that team because I'm like, man, that'd be so cool if they made history. The New England Patriots had that happen one year. They were undefeated. They were going into the Super Bowl and they lost to the Giants and no one cares anymore. It's like that, that team wasn't historic. And I tell you that because... It's one thing to start out really well, go 38-0, you're awesome, but it's another thing to actually finish the job. And I say that because in Scripture, there is a theme that you see over and over again. And that theme 
is this idea of finishing your life well. And there are a ton of people throughout scripture that they start really strong, but they don't finish strong. Okay, and there's tons of examples. I'll just give you one so you know I'm not making this up. One of them is Solomon. Solomon, in, I think it's in 1 Kings 3, he takes over the throne from his father, David, and he prays this awesome prayer to God. If you remember it, he asked God to give him wisdom. That's what he asked for. And he starts off really faithful to God. But then over the course of his life, he becomes really wealthy and he becomes distracted by wealth, by his relationship with women and by other things. And he ends up causing a lot of problems for the kingdom. He ends up living towards the end of his life, a life of dysfunction. He does not finish well. And we see this through scripture a lot, this idea of not finishing well or finishing your life well. And, and here's why I say that is because what I want for you and what we want for you as a ministry is we want you to be passionately in love with the God of the Bible and to passionately live it out outside of these walls, right? Like we are not gathering here today so that you'll just be good moral people who show up to church and kind of play that whole game, right? Like we don't want to do that. We don't want people to just kind of come in and are spectators with Christianity for their lives. We want, as a pastor I heard this week called it, we want people that are problems for the enemy. Meaning that like when you go to college one day, the enemy's like, oh shoot, he's at AM, he's at Texas, he's at OU, he's at Alabama. Like he's gonna cause problems for my purposes. That's what we want, right? Like we want you to be a problem for the enemy on the teams that you're on, in the schools that you go to. That's what we want. And we believe that Christianity is not just what happens inside these walls. Christianity is what happens outside of these walls. That in these walls, we are reminded of things that are true so that we can go outside these walls and have it affect our lives. So our, our goal and our prayer is that, not that you would live a life of perfection, because that's not possible, but that you would live a life of passionate devotion to Jesus outside these walls. And I say that because that is where we find Paul as he finishes this letter that he wrote to Timothy. The last words that we have, he is finishing his life well in the Mamertine prison. This is the Mamertine prison. We have a picture of this. You can go visit this in Rome. This is just a little picture of it. He's in this dark prison cell and where we find him is actually finishing his life well. So this is what I want to talk about is when you think about this idea of finishing well, you're like, well, why are we talking about that? We're in high school. We're just getting started with this whole thing. Because one of the things I've learned is that if you're going to finish your life well, that starts by living faithfully today. When I was working at a camp, me and a friend just kind of asked the question. We didn't really know what we were doing. We were leading other people. We're like, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know where to start. And I felt the same thing when I first started in youth ministry uh, I was working for a, another church. I don't even know what this was, like eight to 10 years ago. And I was like, I don't even know where to start. And we came up with this kind of this mantra, and it was a football mantra, but we just kind of adapted it. It's the idea of winning the day, okay? It's, I think it's actually my Instagram biography, which I probably need to change because I've had that for like 10 years. But it's this idea of all, you, all God's asking you to do is to be faithful today, right? And, and as days stack up, it, it, it adds up over time. And I just remember that. I was like, I have no idea how to lead a youth ministry, but I can get up and be faithful today. I can get up and read scripture and tell other people about it and love people well today. And so that's what Paul does is he just wins the day, just one day at a time. He just lives 
faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully. So this is the, the point we're gonna talk about today. Finishing well starts by living faithfully today. And a life lived well looks like three things. Pouring into people's lives, having a hunger for God's word, and keeping our eyes on what's eternal. That's what we're gonna see as Paul finishes his letter to 2 Timothy. So we're just gonna walk through these things one by one, starting in verse nine of chapter four. Now here's the thing, when you get to this part, you're gonna notice it. These are normally the parts we skip over. Like you read this and you're like, he's just talking about random people and I don't even know these names. Um, I will struggle to pronounce them. I practice pronouncing them and I still struggle to pronounce them even though I practice pronouncing them. So we may just call them by their first initial a couple times, I don't know. Um, but this, what you'll find is there's so much here. Okay, there's so much in these verses. See, like the last name, I'm looking at it right now and I'm like, I practice how to say that and I, I know it's gonna come out really bad, but here we go. Okay, this is gonna be interesting. Do your best to come to me soon. Okay, remember he's writing from jail, he's awaiting his execution. For Demos, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, see, I can't, I can't get it out right. I have sent to Ephesus. I wish they could all just be Luke and Mark. That would be really helpful. Okay, now this is what you see. This is the first point. This is what we see, Paul, from a jail cell. He is pouring into other people. Okay, I'm gonna show you where we see this. He is, if you, if you look at this, he's coordinating ministry on like five different fronts. Okay, I've, I've heard people say he's like a coach who is calling plays. Okay, you would think in a jail cell, his ministry has shut down, but his ministry hasn't shut down at all. It's actually expanded. Okay, look at it. He's like, hey, get Mark, bring him with me. He's useful to me for ministry. Okay, I've sent this other guy at the end. He's in Ephesus right now. He's doing ministry. I mean, Paul is locked in a jail cell and he's still sending people out doing ministry. So his ministry has expanded. So as he awaits his death, okay, he is still investing in other people with his life. He's still investing in people. So what happens is death, not retirement, interrupts his ministry. Now, we live in a day where a lot of people envision comfort in retirement one day, right? Like that day when I can just be done and I can chill on a beach forever. Okay, but what the Bible envisions is that God's people would live faithfully on his mission until the end of their lives. They may retire from their jobs. There may come a day where it's like, I'm not gonna work at my job anymore, but they never retire from being on his mission. Now, I try intentionally, there, there it was, I just used a church lingo word. I try to not use church lingo in here because one, it's annoying, and then two, sometimes it doesn't mean anything, and then three, non-Christians like don't know what we're talking about. So I don't know if you've ever had that happen, but like the, the Christian phrases everybody throws out there, like I just wanna be in community, you know? It's like, what does that even mean? But so we say these things, so I try not to do that because it's annoying and it also means nothing sometimes. Like non-Christians will hear that and it's like, that's just weird. Like, I don't even know what that means. But pouring into people is one of those phrases that you'll hear in the church. And it's like, what does that even mean, pouring into people, okay? But I'm using it intentionally, and this is why I'm using it intentionally, is because what we are filled with is what will overflow to other people. Okay, one of the things I tell our staff all the time is that the state that I am in is the state that I'm gonna pass on to other people. About a year ago, I was at a wedding in San Antonio. It was in the hill country. Um, so I was in this like really random place in the hill country and there was this big rainstorm that came in 
And what happened is there was so much rain that the, the dirt roads overflew, overflowed, 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 and you could not drive through them. Like there was so much rain that it piled up that you were not able to drive through them, okay? And it had affected it. Like there was so much buildup that it overflowed and affected everyone. Okay, now I want you to see this, this is Romans 5, 3 through 5. Okay, watch what Paul says in Romans. He's explaining the gospel in Romans 5. I think I put it on there. Yeah, I did. Okay, look at this. Okay, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Okay, he knows what he's talking about because later on he would rejoice in his sufferings in a jail cell, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame. Watch this. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there's this concept that what he's talking about is that when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit pours God's love into your heart. What that means is that not only do you know in your mind that God loves you, you get to experience in your life and in your heart a sense that the creator of everything loves you and delights in you. He pours that into your heart. So if God has poured his love into you, that's going to overflow into other people and you're going to invest in others. Okay. I don't know if you know who Liam Neeson is. He's the actor that does all like the crazy movies where he's like breaking down walls and rescuing people. Um, there was a series of movies where for some reason he was always the guy who was mentoring younger guys. So he trained young Obi-Wan Kenobi. Okay. He trained young Batman in the Batman Begins movie. He trained young Orlando Bloom. Good for him. Okay. He was just the guy. He was like the actor that was training all these younger people, Obi-Wan, Batman, Orlando Bloom. Um, Hollywood understood that we want and we need mentors who will speak to us the truth. So one of the best uses of your time and of my time is to invest in other people, to invest in younger Christians, okay? Now, what we also see in that passage, the first part of 2 Timothy 4, the, the 9 through 12 passage, is Paul not only is investing in other people, discipling other people. He is asking, he wants to be surrounded by a few good Christian friends before he dies. He's, that's what he's requesting. He wants to be surrounded with a few of his good Christian friends. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but we use that word friend very loosely today, don't we? Like we use it very loosely. There is a social media app that kind of started everything else called Facebook. And you, it's literally called you friend someone. Okay, now I'm, I'm on it, I never check it, but I have like probably 800 something friends that I probably haven't talked to in like over a year. You know what I mean? And so we use this word a lot. It's like, I have a huge group of friends, I'm hanging out with them tonight. And the reality is what a, what a true friend is, is someone that knows you and you know them deeply. They're, they are investing in your life. So it is a better thing to have two to three really good Christian friends than a hundred fans, followers, acquaintances, whatever you want to call it. And that's what we see with Paul. Paul has a couple really, really close Christian friends that he wants to be next to him. Okay, this is Proverbs 18, 24. And it basically makes this point. If we have it right here, I think I put this one in. Okay, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. It's one thing to have a lot of companions. It's another thing to have really solid Christian friends. So what we see with Paul at the end of his life, he's pouring into people. He's pouring into people younger than him, 
and he's seeking to surround himself with just a few of his good Christian friends. So I want us to think about this before we go to the next one. At the end of your life, in my life, would I rather have a bunch of money, a bunch of possessions that aren't going to go with me, or people that surround you at your funeral, thanking God and celebrating how he's used you to change their life? Okay, you can start that today if you haven't already. But that's what we see from Paul is that a life lived well involves investing, pouring into other people. Okay, the second thing we see is having a hunger for God's word. So look at verse 13, this is 2 Timothy 4, 13. And we're almost to the end here. When you come, this is really interesting, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. She's like, well, what does that have to do with anything? Okay, in verse 13, look at it. He asked for three things. First one's companionship. He's, he wants um, Timothy to come to him, okay? Um, the second thing is his cloak. Now, this shows the humanity of Paul. This shows you what he's really dealing with in prison is that he's freezing cold in that prison. He knows that winter is just gonna get worse. So he is asking for his coat, okay? Which is just real. It just shows the realness of this letter that he wants his cloak, because it's cold. And when he was arrested, he probably didn't have an opportunity to gather all of his possessions. So he didn't get to grab his cloak. So he's like, hey, when you visit me, remember the cloak because I'm cold. Okay, now the, the other thing he says, he wants the books and above all, he wants the parchments. So the thing he wants above anything else are the parchments, which is interesting. Now, what people think is that these were books of some kind. And what they think it was is it's probably referring to Paul's version of the Old Testament that he had in Greek, which would have been a huge thing to carry around. It's his Old Testament scriptures. And this is the really cool part. It's possibly um, official copies of Jesus's words and the early narratives that were forming of his life that would turn in to the gospel. So this is what we learned, is at the end of his life, the guy that wrote the majority of the New Testament, okay? The guy that wrote the majority of the New Testament wants to study scripture until the day that he dies. That's what he wants to do in prison. He is requesting for his copy of the scriptures to be brought to him so that he can study it until the day that he dies. The guy that wrote like most of the New Testament. All right, now, I don't know if there's a movie that you could watch over and over again. Like I think everyone kind of has that movie that it's like you could watch it a hundred times and it's funnier every time, or it's just you notice different things, or you it entertains you every single time. That's how Paul is with the Word of God. Like, he just cannot, never gets old to him. Every time he's in it, until the day that he dies, he cannot get enough of the Word of God. Okay, this is, these are verses from Psalm 119. This is verse 72 and 103. Yes, there are that many verses in Psalm 119. Okay, look at how the psalmist describes the word of God in Psalm 119. Let's see if we have it. Okay, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That's what we see Paul doing here, is that Paul sees God's word as more valuable than silver and gold, as sweeter than honey, even to the end of his life. I remember hearing when I was in seminary, there was a professor who was one of the smartest professors in the seminary, he was a genius with the word of God. And what they talked about is that at the end of his life, before he would die, was going to die, is that if you looked up in his room, okay, as he's sick, he's hurting, he's approaching his death, 
and you could see early in the morning his light would turn on and you knew that what he was doing is he was spending time reading his Bible. This guy that had studied it, this guy that knew it, that was teaching it to others at one of these seminaries is that every morning he was hungry for more. So if you combine these first two points, investing in others and being hungry for the word of God, what you see Paul to the end of his life, it's he's taking care of his input and he's, he's taking care of his output. He's filling himself with the word of God and he's pouring out to invest in other people. Okay, now this is the last point here, is keeping our eyes on what's eternal. This is verse 14 to 22. Uh, this is all the random stuff. It's like, what does this even mean? Okay, so, so check this out. I'm gonna read it on here so I don't have to turn my head. Uh, let me find it real quick. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, see what I'm saying, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Crazy names back in the day, you know? Um, I'll put it this way. When you, when you see Paul's eternal perspective here, okay, in my car, one of the things that it, it does, and it really shocked me early on because I used to have an old school H3, some of y'all remember, okay? Didn't have these cool technological features. But in the, in the newer car, um, if you drive it and if you, if you kind of like veer off a little bit or whatever, maybe you get distracted or something, it has this thing, it's called steering assist. I don't know if you've been in a car where it does. And it kind of like catches you, like the wheel kind of automatically kind of like jolts back into place. And it, it kind of makes you know, you're veering off, get it together, okay? Um, it's steering assist. And it, the first time it would happen, it kind of shocked me. I was like, oh my gosh, what is it doing? It's like in control of me right now. Um, and we often need what I would call eternity steering assist is that if you're like me, it's easy for me to get off track. And I start worrying about things that aren't eternal. I start worrying about things that are just going to last in the here and now, that only matter in the here and now. And what we need regularly is the steering assist to say, no, 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 get back on track, focus on what's eternal. And that's what we see Paul doing at the end of his life. You're like, well, where does it say that? Well, well, look at this. He is being honest about the fact that he has been deserted. He is being honest about his condition. So you hear that name, Alexander. He does not say great things about Alexander. Okay, what people think is that he might've been the one who was responsible for Paul um, being arrested and being sent to prison. So that's why he's telling Timothy, hey, well, you're going to have to go through the city Alexander's in. Just be careful because he got me arrested. So you got to be careful when you see him. Now, what he also says is that in his public court case, that no one was there to support him. Okay. Now we don't know if that's because they were unable to get there or because they chose not to. But what we know is that he was deserted in his time of greatest need. He didn't have anybody there to support him as he was making his defense before he was imprisoned. Okay. And it very well could have been in front of the emperor. Now, why I say that? Because that is not going to make the spring break Instagram post. You know what I'm saying? 
Like that, you're not going to post that and be like, look at my awesome time at the beach. Everyone deserted me. Okay. It's not what you're going to say. But Paul's just being real. Like he's like, hey, look, let me tell you what happened in my life. Like this was a really hard moment. Like I got arrested because this guy kind of betrayed me and no one was there to support me. And what he's revealing is the fact that sometimes following Jesus is difficult. Sometimes following Jesus is costly. So the question is like, well, how did Paul do that then? How was he actually able to endure? And he tells you in there, he talks about how the Lord is who strengthened him. So what he's saying is that Christ's presence at his side gave him this gift of inward strength. So in the moment, instead of being focused on himself, which is probably what I would have done, he's actually, and he says it, he preaches the gospel. So what he means is that at his sentence, at his court case, if you will, would have been a public court case with a ton of people there. He used it as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel of the people there weren't believers. Now, when he says that God rescued me from the lion, what some people think is that he's talking about the emperor Nero, who was known for being violent towards Christians. And so what Paul's saying is, hey, God spared me. Like in my, in my sentencing, I got to be arrested. I'm in prison. Okay, now that's weird because we know that he's about to be executed. But what Paul's saying is that God is going to bring me safely into his kingdom, even if this emperor tries to remove me from his kingdom. That's Paul's mentality. See, that's an eternal perspective. Is Paul's like, nothing can harm me from being brought safely into God's kingdom. Even if someone tries to violently remove me from their earthly kingdom, nothing can take me from God's kingdom. All right, now in verse 10, there's this interesting guy named Demas. And Paul's like, the guy named Demas deserted him. Now, his name, if you look at it, if you translate it, Demas's name, it means popular. That's what his name means. And it says that the allurements of the world caused him to get off track and abandon Paul. And so what we see is this principle here is that I, it raises a challenging question for me and for all of us is that am I going to seek to be faithful to God or am I going to seek being liked by other people. At the end of the day, these two paths will diverge. These two paths are going to contradict each other. And so we see Demas, this guy that got tempted by the allurements of the world and popularity. And we see Paul, they remained faithful. Now, okay, how do we do this? Because we hear this, we're like, man, we're talking about pouring into people, being hungry for scripture, having an eternal perspective, even when everything's hard, even if it costs me popularity. How do we do it? Okay, I want you to look at the end here. Um, the last verse that Paul writes, this is the last recorded verse that he writes. And this is kind of what we're gonna end with. And I got one quick story. Okay, look at this. The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. Now, this is really cool. I want you to look at this. The Lord be with your spirit. In the Greek, that is singular, meaning that is directed to Timothy. He is speaking to Timothy, saying, Timothy, the Lord be with your spirit. Now, here's what's really interesting. And it's really cool. The last phrase there, grace be with you, that is actually plural. He switches to plural. So what basically, if he were a Texan, he would say, grace be with y'all. That's what he would say. Grace be with you all. Now we're like, well, that's weird because he just wrote a whole letter to Timothy. Why is the last thing he says, grace be with you all, grace be with y'all? Okay, this is why. Because Paul knew, he was well aware that this letter was destined for public use. He knew that this letter was going to be read publicly to other churches, potentially throughout history, and now we're publicly reading it today. 
So Paul directed this last statement to people like you and me, who we knew were gonna read this letter one day. Now, grace be with you. Grace sums up his whole theology, his whole life is summed up in this idea of grace. So this is what I want to tell you before we're done here, is that the only way to live a life like this is to know that your identity is in Christ. Okay, I was reading this week, this guy says that Christianity uniquely offers a non-performative identity. What that means is it's not constantly ebbing and flowing with your performance, your accomplishments, your conduct, okay? That one of the main themes of the gospel is that you are dearly loved as a child of God because of what Jesus did. And what we see with Paul's life is once he got that message, changed everything. That message, knowing that his identity was as a loved child of God because Jesus died for him, that is what gave him the fuel. And that's why he ends this letter saying, grace be with you. Okay, so I'm gonna close with this quick story. Um, I, this is not a true story. I looked this up. It's an anecdotal kind of fictional story to make a point. It's actually in a song written by this guy and Merle Haggard sang it on an album, which is kind of funny. But this is the, uh, the story. It kind of goes like this. I remember hearing this when I was in high school and it always stuck with me and I think it's relevant to this concept that we're talking about. So here, this is the story. Is that there were a couple of people, the couple, they served God faithfully overseas. They were missionaries. And then while they were over there, this illness overtook them. So they lost some of their kids and they were too weak to serve anymore where God had called them to serve. So they came home. Okay, and on that ship that they were coming back from, there happened to be a celebrity on the, the ship and he was living unrighteously. He was womanizing. He was being foolish. He was partying hard. He was rebelling against God. Okay, and they weren't surprised. They didn't judge him. They were humble about the fact that they knew that if God didn't rescue them, they would be doing the same things. They tried to love him well, be kind to him, but this guy was a big time celebrity. Okay, so when they docked in the harbor, they got there, there are all kinds of people trying to welcome this guy back. Okay, it was a notorious trip and all these people wanted to hear what happened on the safaris, what happened while he was overseas. Um, there were cameras, there were paparazzi, there were media. So they were celebrating him, they were interviewing him, they were making a big deal about the fact that he had come home. He had done a little bit of humanitarian work while he was there, uh, but he had lived like a wild man and they wanted to celebrate and hear about all of his crazy stories. So as they're walking off the ship, having lost their family and their health for those 30 years, the man was discouraged, the husband, because of everything they had lost. So he's tearing up and the wife kind of turns to him and she's like, honey, what's wrong? And he says, man, we've lost children. We've lost our health. We've been gone for 30 years. There's nobody here to greet us when we come home. This man has lived wildly. He's lived inappropriately. He's partied hard. And he is going to be a hero. He's getting this king's welcome upon his return, okay? And the wife grabs him and she goes, honey, we're not home. And I always remembered that ending when I was in high school um, because no matter where you are today, if you recognize the fact that this world is not your home, it is going to give shape to the priorities and perspectives that you live with. Um, what Paul is telling us is don't be deceived. If you're here today and you believe that Christianity is a cultural activity, that you kind of check off the list, but real joy is found in seeking momentary pleasures that the world offers and the popularity of the moment, in the end, that's gonna lead to disappointment. And if you're here today, you're a believer, you may be looking around you and you're seeing people and you're discouraged and maybe even tempted because you're seeing people 
look like they're having fun and potentially even thriving because they are living life apart from God. May this remind you today in this whole letter that if you follow Jesus, you will never regret it now and especially in the life to come. Paul wasn't home. Now he is, and he gets to see the fruit of what it looks like to finish well. Okay, let me pray for you. God, we thank you for this book of 2 Timothy. We thank you that we got to dig deep into it, that it took us 11 weeks to go all the way through. We thank you for this reminder that this world is not our home. We pray that we would not live for the momentary pleasures of today, but that we would pour into people, we would be hungry for your word, and we would live with an eternal perspective, all rooted in our identity as your beloved children. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.